Welcome to the show. In this one, I talk to O'Hara Scheip. She's a former professional hockey player and a journalist. She started playing hockey at five years old, after she was told she couldn't because she's a girl. So the next thing she did was go to her parents and tell them that's what she was going to do. They signed her up that fall, and she walked over to the coach and said she was going to be their next goalie. She's never liked being told that she's limited, that she can't do something. So when her professional hockey career came to an end in 2013, it was devastating. She contracted viral meningitis from a dirty back injection. The infection led to myalgic encephalomyelitis, or ME, and causes neurological disorders. Hand tremors, memory loss, neuropathy, excruciating pain. There are even times when her ability to speak is taken from her. When she was first diagnosed, she was bedbound, but she worked her way up to playing hockey and rock climbing a couple times a week. She's an eternal optimist. That's how she defines herself in so many aspects of her life. And the last thing she was going to do was let this illness define her. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the Crude Magazine Patreon subscribers. If you already subscribe to the Crude Magazine Patreon, thank you. For those listeners who aren't, please consider subscribing at patreon.com slash crude magazine. That's patreon.com slash crude magazine. And pick the subscription tier that works for you. I want to thank everyone subscribed at the Company Man tier. These are the people who have subscribed to the Crude Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber. Seward Brewing Company. The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau. Derek Adolph. Sharon Liska. Jake Liska. Alaska Surf Adventure. Aquila Space. And Borderline Legacy. Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers. Your money and your support make these conversations possible. You can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. That's buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. And if you have a chance to rate or review Crude Conversations on Apple Podcasts, please do. Also, you can now get crude apparel and merchandise at TeePublic. From t-shirts to hoodies to stickers, baby onesies and more. Just go to the Crude Instagram and click the link in the bio. Okay, back to O'Hara Shipe. Before she was its editor, she took photos and wrote articles for the Anchorage Press. The second article she wrote for the paper was about the band Buck Cherry. They were in Anchorage playing a show, and they gave her a candid, warts and all interview. It was a transformative experience for her as a journalist, to see an entire picture of a celebrity not just their public image. She says that was a turning point for her, when she really started to consider herself a writer. And the more she wrote and took photos for the paper, the better she understood the function of alt-weeklies, how they provide a unique opportunity to talk about the things that fall outside of traditional media, the human stories behind the news. When she became the editor of the Anchorage Press, she wanted to return it to what she considered its heyday. For her, 
That was under the editorship of Susie Buchanan. O'Hara says the paper was well-designed. The stories were insightful, hard-hitting, and they had a point. Her goal was to return it back to that. But with such a small budget to pay contributors, it was hard. Instead of being able to pay contributors each week for content, she was responsible for writing four or five articles and taking most of the photos. It was definitely a labor of love. She'd go on 36-hour benders to design, copy edit, and rewrite articles when necessary. This lasted for about nine months. And then, on December 16, 2022, she was told the paper was closing and was given less than an hour to gather her things. So here she is, O'Hara Scheip. <laughs> this red light right here, it means we're recording. Okay, fired up. Crude Conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work! What does FURTA mean? <laughs> what does FURTA mean? <laughs> um, you know, it's uh, from... Letter Kenny, so it's a hockey show that admittedly I've never watched. I just thought it was funny. So, Ferda being Ferda Boys. <laughs> um, so, I, uh, I actually had a hat made for that. So, when I have beerly cocky um, on Tuesdays and Fridays, I can wear a Ferda Boys hat. <laughs> but it, it's a totally stolen reference. But you've adopted it. Oh, absolutely. I am, yeah. hey, if someone comes up with a good idea, I'm totally fine to run with it. Yeah. So you've been playing hockey for a while, right? Yeah, so I actually started playing when I was five. Um, it's kind of like a funny story. So my next door neighbors, when I was five, told me that I couldn't play hockey because I was a girl. And then they told me I couldn't play goalie because I couldn't do the splits. Um, so I marched right over to my parents and was like, hey, I'm going to play hockey. Um, and they signed me up that fall and I walked over to the coach and I was like, hi, I'm O'Hara Scheip. I'm going to be your goalie. Um, and they'd ask like, Hey, <laughs> have you ever played before? And I'm like, no, no, but I'm your goalie. Um, and we did like, uh, we did a tryout and I just, I guess stood on my head and, and got the position and, and never looked back. Um, I've kind of always been that sort of person. That's like, if you tell me no, then I'm going to do it even more. You know, I wonder if you have any other situations that you can think of where, where people told, you no, and you were like, I I'm doing it. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think I think just even being a woman, um, you know, being told no a lot is kind okay. of like built into into just being part of the sex. Um, so, oh, and the dog. Hold on. Luke, really? All right. Hold on, Cody. One second. <laughs> I, I will redo that. Luke, no. Lucas? Stay. All right, I'm locking him out. Yeah, he, he jumped the barricade and went into my room and then was running around with a bra. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was like, that's expensive. I got to get that out of his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and we can just continue. So we were, we were talking about, or you were, you were answering, you know, other people kind of telling you that you can't do something. Yeah. Um, so I think being told no, uh, it's just kind of part of being a woman. Um, it sucks, but it's kind of true. So mm -hmm. I can remember a lot of situations, even just playing hockey, where I was told no, I couldn't play with the guys. I couldn't go to prep school. I couldn't you know, go to college. I couldn't do all of these things. Um, and I never wanted that to define me. 
I think like I kind of grew up with a mom who it was really important to her that we felt empowered, my brother and I, to carve out our own destination and to sort of make our own path in this world. Mm-hmm. So we have this saying in our family that no is just a request for more information. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's, uh, it's kind of been one of those things that I just sort of adopted um, and I haven't let it define me. Um, I've been told no a lot. And like my mom always tells me, it's a request for more information. So I just kind of kept pushing forward. Do you know where that came from, that saying? Um, (laughs) You know, I'm just going to credit it to Martha Henderson. (laughs) Um, You know, my, uh, you know, I I definitely think some of the best advice I've ever gotten has always been from my mom. Um, Mm -hmm. And so we had these these series of sayings growing up and I have no idea where they came from. So I just assumed that they were from her. Um, But we, we called it the wild woman creed. And one of them was, yeah, no, or no is a request for more information. Um, and then we also had, when in Boston, everything loops, um, because it's all one-way <laughs> traffic everywhere. Yeah. Um, we're not here for a long time, just a good time. Um, we don't know these people. Um, and, at, <laughs> and in the first sign of trouble, you're on your own. <laughs> so we... Um, you know, I just had these really great adventures with my mom growing up, sort of living living those principles. And now as an adult, um, I kind of was like, yeah, I'm going to keep going with it. Can you think of, or maybe off the top of your head, do you remember any of those adventures or maybe one in specific? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, so one that we still joke about. Um, I've never been good at math. Like, I'm going to be totally honest. Like, I can't even read analog clocks. Like, that just, that whole, I know, it's embarrassing. That whole thing just just skipped a generation, I think, when it came to me. Um, and I remember my mom and I had driven across country. Um, and uh, in her little, we called it the tune cars, this little purple uh, Suzuki X90 two-seater car with, like, no AC. Um, and we had arrived from New York into Seattle, and we wanted to take the bus into um, Pike's Market. And we get on the bus and my mom hands me this like wad of cash because it was exact change only. And she just mm-hmm. sits down. She's like, I'm going to go grab us a seat. Now, the bus is completely empty, mind you, right? Like there was no reason for her to ditch me with the change in my hand. <laughs> I was like <laughs> panicking, trying to like count the money and I couldn't figure it out. I was getting flustered. And there's this like line of 40 people behind me trying to get on the bus because <laughs> it was the first stop. <laughs> my mom's just sitting five rows back, just dying like laughing hysterically. I'm like she's like, "Hey, somebody's got to live to tell the tale." I'm like, "That is <laughs> that is so messed up." Um, and there was there's also an incident uh, at a Macy's where I like went to lean on an underwear table and like I thought it was a table and it wasn't. It was just like a piece of like glass like put on a uh, I don't know, like some sort of pillar. And so the yeah. whole thing went to fall and I was like, "Oh my god, oh my god." So I was like trying to like inch it back so I didn't like break the glass and drop like hundreds of dollars worth of lacy underwear on the ground. <laughs> and my mom's like, what are you doing? I'm like, mom, this thing's ro- this thing's falling. I don't know what to do. And she just started cracking up and just left me. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm like, thanks mom. There's a whole bunch of situations like that. We can look back and, and laugh. <laughs> that, that one was kind of rough. Can you explain we don't know these people? Yeah. Oh God. Um, so we don't know these people kind of came up from my mom just being a wild woman and, you know, going to the grocery store, going to cars uh, in her pajamas, like and, and ripped up, you know, like ripped up pajamas in the middle of the day or like yeah. whatever. Just didn't never really mattered, you know. And so I think as a kid, like I was trying to fit in and would be like, oh, I need to put on like nice clothes. I need to try to like fit in. And my mom's like, we don't know these people throw on the jammers. 
Um, so, um, you know, like, yeah, just wear the pajamas. Like even now, like I'm 36 and I, I go to my local cars wearing these just God awful Walmart pajamas that are like lions wearing sunglasses. Um, <laughs> and they're like six sizes too big. So they're usually falling off while I'm trying to walk down the aisles and I'm like, eh, I don't know these people, but <laughs> the irony of it is that it's Alaska. So we all know these people. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm like, I don't know if this really works, but, um, you know, I I think it was like this life lesson kind of, you know, embedded in like a really funny story, but a life lesson of of the importance of just being yourself and being who you are as opposed to putting on a front. Um, and I think when I left Alaska, that was a really important thing. I think it differentiated me from a lot of people, um, and kind of kept me humble and grounded. And where did you go when you left Alaska? Yeah, so um, when I was 13, I ended up um, moving all the way across the country to Andover, Massachusetts, which is about 20 minutes outside of Boston. Um, And I went to this really prestigious prep school called Phillips Academy Andover. Um, It was in 2000, so the internet was kind of just starting going, you know, at the time. And uh, I had no idea where I was going. I just thought I was going to go to a hockey school. Um, And then Mm -hmm. I showed up, you know, like sight unseen uh, to go there and realized like, oh, this is actually a smart people school. I probably Mm -hmm. don't belong here. Um, and incidentally, <laughs> the, the hockey was pretty terrible. Um, but you know, I, it, it took a while definitely to like level out. I was, I was the weird Alaskan kid there for quite a while. Um, but I, you know, just, just going with my mom, having those, like those little life lessons that she taught me, I think got me through, mm-hmm. uh, and over, I was, I was known as the descent, the dissenter or the dissenting view. <laughs> and I was really comfortable being that person. That's what they called you, the dissenter. Oh, yeah. My teachers all did, yeah. But they all loved me. Like, the the hardest teachers really liked me because, unlike the other students, I wasn't afraid to say, actually, I disagree with that. Or, like, eh, I think you might be wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, because everyone was at such a prestigious school. Like, this is like a feeder for Harvard and Yale. Um, you know, you're trying to just outdo all the other students and trying to get the highest grade. So some students were comfortable just saying, like, agreeing with the teacher on everything. Um, and I wasn't brought up that way. I was brought up to speak my mind and, mm-hmm. you know, I was, I was always the dissenting view. So my teachers definitely nicknamed me the dissenter. <laughs> Where do you think you got that from, you know, being a dissenter? Definitely my mom. Um, you know, she's had this really profound impact on my life. I think even more than she realizes, um, I think in her mind, she doesn't have quite the effect that she did. But, you know, I, I was raised to be someone to who speaks their mind, who stands up for injustice um, and calls mm-hmm. it out. Um, and, you know, I, I, my dad even as well, um, that was something that was really important to him was, was you know, equality and, and fighting for that. So I think I kind of grew up into a family that would call out things when they needed to be called out. Um, and that was sort of just instilled in me as a young kid. You know, I feel like, you know, as kids, we we're told by our parents maybe to act or to not act a certain way. But in my mind, those those talks are always like so much more enhanced by how we see our parents act, you know, in situations, you know, where where it's on them to behave that way. Do you have any uh, memories of maybe your mom or your dad, like kind of practicing what they preach? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, so my dad was, uh, 
was a vice president um, at the National Bank of Alaska before it became Wells Fargo. Um, and then he transferred to Alaska, USA. And one of the things that was always really important to him was to promote women within the organization. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think he left his legacy was actually promoting just so many women into leadership positions. Mm. And so I saw that on a daily basis. And then my mom um, owned her own marketing company. And one of the things that she would do every year was take on three to four pro bono marketing gigs. Um, and a lot of people don't don't know this because she's so quiet about it, not braggadocious, but she actually started Neighbors Make a Difference. Mm. Um, that was that actually was my mom. Um, and it became this like national day of giving, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, and then when I was little, she also did the uh, Share the Holiday Spirit, which I think later became the Gift Project. Um, with, you know, essentially it allowed um, low-income families to come in and get gifts for their children and the children to make gifts for their parents. And then they would give out um, Christmas dinner or Thanksgiving dinners to people. And my mom always had my brother and I volunteer at that, um, actively volunteer and actively be involved in it um, to, to really show us like, A, what we had in our life and how lucky we are, but B, how important it is to have an open mind and, how, and to give back to the community that you're in. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, my, my parents really did lead by example. That was something that I watched my entire life, you know, and as an adult um, working in a professional field, you know, sometimes it's hard because I, I expect everyone to sort of have that same moral compass um, mm -hmm. and to act the same way. And it, it's always so disheartening when it doesn't happen that way. Um, but I've been lucky enough that, like, I haven't gotten jaded yet. Um, I've maybe gotten tougher, but definitely not jaded and still kind of really lead with my heart and those principles of, of being uh, a community member and taking care of those around you. Do you know why you haven't become jaded? Um, yeah, I think I'm an eternal optimist. <laughs> um, okay. Okay. You know, I, and that extends to everything like dating up here too. Absolute eternal optimist. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, ah, well, yeah, it could be worse. You know, they're a felon, but could be worse. Um, and that's, you know, like actually a true story. Um, I was writing a column for a while called the adventures of Tinderella, um, under, a pen, <laughs> under a pen name, um, to talk about my terrible dating. And so I've just, you know, I've always had that kind of indomitable spirit that is just like optimistic to like the point of like O'Hara, seriously. Um, and you know, it definitely gets me hurt a lot. Um, and it's, it's sad, but I just, it's one of those things I just can't shake, you know? Um, I, I don't even know where it came from. I, I think maybe it's being a Cancerian. I, I have no idea. But <laughs> I'm like, we'll call him the Zodiac. We're going to call it everything for this answer. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm just going to throw the kitchen sink at this answer. Yeah. Mercury's in retrograde. Yeah. Something like that. I don't know. Something about <laughs> like Leo rising, Sagittarius. I don't know. Um, yeah, you know, I, I honestly don't know where it came from. I just, I've always been that kind of person who was just really eternally optimistic, like painfully so. You said that for a while you did a column called Adventures of Tinderella. Do you have any, uh, you know, I keep asking you for stories, but you, you know, you keep, you keep giving me, uh, you know, you keep giving me the opportunity to ask you. So, uh, do you have any, like any of those articles that come to mind? <laughs> Um, yes. <laughs> so, um, yeah, like I've had just the craziest like dating experiences and everyone's like, oh, you know, when I published my first Tinderella, everyone was like, oh, well, this isn't going to be that good. No, 
you know, I've, I've read all these dating stories and then I read the first one. They were like, oh my God, that is like incredibly relatable and just absolutely absurd. <laughs> um, so like, <laughs> I, you know, I got my first Irish goodbye, which I'd never heard of before. Um, that was like one of my first Tinder dates where I met a guy and I thought things were going well. We're at the bar at a Jeffrey show and everyone sees me with them. Um, and I, I think like, all right, we're, we're doing great. And then, but his phone kept buzzing. I'm like looking over, like, what, you, should you answer that? He's like, no, no, it's fine. And I think the name was like Lisa or Liza or something. And I'm like, well, who's Lisa? He's like, oh, it's my mom. And I'm like, you have your mom and your phone by her first name? <laughs> He's like, yeah, it's a complicated story, but yeah, no, we, we do. He's like, uh, I'm going to go to the bathroom. And I'm like, okay, you know, just eh, nothing happened. Yeah, no, it was his wife. Um, oh. And uh, he, him going to the bathroom ended up being just leaving me at huh. the carousel. Um, during a Jeffrey show, I am like, cause he had been my ride. So then I ended up yeah. having to like, I guess, ride of shame as it were, um, in a, in a cab, um, back home. And then the cabbie ended up trying to pick me up. I was like, let me take you out. I'm like, it's been a shit night. <laughs> no, sorry. I swore. It's been a bad night. <laughs> and he's like, well, I, I can make it better. You're dressed up. And I'm like, yeah, we're good. <laughs> so what part of that is an Irish goodbye? Uh, so an Irish goodbye, apparently now, I, I had to look this up, is if someone says that they're going to get a drink or they're going to the bathroom and they never come back. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't know it was a thing. It, it was funny, too. Um, somebody had commented on the on the article saying, isn't that racist? <laughs> I was like, well, I'm Irish, so I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, it seems like you could apply that to so many different situations they don't even need to be a date you know you can you could pull an irish goodbye on like your family on thanksgiving literally you could irish goodbye anyone yeah it's <laughs> like like i might have to irish irish goodbye my dog here in a second if he doesn't calm down um but yeah no i just had all sorts of crazy dates you know there was a there's one where I, I met a guy um and i showed up and he was already hammered uh which already made for an interesting date um, and then we decided we wanted to go for a second set of drinks and he wanted to ride bicycles and I'm sitting there in these like six inch red stilettos and like a pinup dress. And all I have is like a racing road bike. And I'm like, but my car's right there. He's like, no, 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 let's just ride bikes. I'm like, huh. okay. So we rode from 49th state brewery all the way down to vans, like in my stilettos with my, yeah, little, like, my little clip-ins. Yeah. Well, and like, you know, it was a low cut dress and you're leaning forward. There was all, it was, it was a boo-boo mess. Um, but he ended up getting so plastered that he left the bar <laughs> with my, with like um, all my stuff in his bike back. And I was like, come back. Like having to, <laughs> having to chase this guy down the street, like in these heels, trying to get my like car keys back. Um, and so oh my he, gosh. he ends up like, I chased him a block and then he ended up coming back and it's like, oh, okay. And he tries to get off his bike and falls over. And I'm like, could you please just maybe let me drive you home? He's like, no, I'm fine. He jumped on his bike and like bailed out again. So, you know, two in the morning, I'm like trying to hold these keys and like an oversized wallet in this low cut dress, <laughs> like in these heels, <laughs> like going all the way back down to F street. Um, like it was it was just super surreal. You're like, this is my life. <laughs> I wonder if at any point in doing, you know, that column, did you, did you start like seeking out more dates for more stories or did you go into it? You know, I'm going on a date. I'm trying to find love still. 
Oh yeah, no, I, again, optimist for life. Okay, okay. Um, you know, like I, I would go on dates because I, I genuinely thought there was like a connection and I wanted, you know, I wanted to be married. I wanted to be in a relationship. So I would keep going on these dates and like, they just kept getting more and more bizarre. Like there was a, there was even like a, this is going to sound absolutely absurd, but there was a Russian prisoner uh, that I talked to for like, <laughs> for like eight oh. months. I swear. <laughs> I didn't get to write this Tinderella, which is sad. Um, but yeah, I met, I met this guy uh, during COVID because you could do the, on Tinder, you could do that like, oh, sorry, the dog. On Tinder, you could do the, the global thing where you could like look anywhere in the US okay. or in the world. And so I was like, well, I speak Russian. I like, I'll connect in Russia. And I started talking to this guy and he's like, hey, can you switch to what's up? I'm like, sure. Okay. First question out the gate. Can you keep a secret? And I'm like, this, this doesn't sound promising. <laughs> like, <laughs> we have this Russian guy asking me if I can keep a secret. And I'm like, sure. Okay. He goes, hey, uh, well, here's my name. Like, look it up. And then if you still want to talk, let me know. So I look it up and it's like, apparently some guy who owned a diamond boutique uh, in St. Petersburg, Russia. And he had been arrested for white collar crimes and was currently in prison awaiting arraignment. And I was like, I, I write him back and I'm like, you know, there's no way I believe that you are who you say you are, right? Like, there's just no way. He's like, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, I, I wouldn't think so either. Like, I understand. And I'm like, but I want to keep practicing Russian. So we'll keep talking. Um, and so like, we get down like two or three months and we've been talking every day and I'm noticing like, wow, his just the way he writes um, and his references, he's clearly like a very well-educated Russian, which typically just having lived in Russia, that typically means they're of a more affluent, you know, family. Okay. Um, so I'm like, okay, I might start buying this. I go, okay, fine. If you are who you say you are, like, I want you to, to take a picture of yourself holding a sign with my name on it, right? Like I was trying to take it straight out of the catfish episode. Like, yeah. We'll see. And then right away I get, I get <laughs> a text message with him clearly in prison <laughs> like holding a piece of paper with my name on it with the pen color in his hand <laughs> oh. like no way and it yeah. was 100% the same guy uh that was photographed in the articles about the person in the white collar crime and I'm like this is insane like only me would this happen to um and so like we kept you know kept talking for about seven months and then one day I haven't heard from him I'm like hey Dima like are you there? Like, what's going on? Didn't hear from him for another few days. So I finally wrote him like, hey, are you okay? And I get this like message back from somebody in completely different like style of writing being mm. like, hey, he got transferred. This isn't his phone anymore. It's <laughs> <was> like, what? <laughs> and, I, and I'd asked him, I go, well, how did you get, how did you get a phone in prison? He goes, O'Hara, I'm rich. And I was like, yeah, that checks out. <laughs> so like, you know, I've just had like just absolutely insane stories. Um, and it was kind of, yeah, like a long time coming writing the column. Um, and I ended up just having a lot of fun with it. But you look back and you're like, I don't know if I've just had like the worst luck ever or maybe the best luck. <laughs> this is hilarious. <laughs> Earlier, you said that you wanted to be married. Is that past tense? Is that future? Is it present? I mean, I, I think like the goal for most people, you know, is to, is to find their partner. I know for me as an artist and as a journalist, like my life would be so much easier if I had a second person in it. If we had you know, just even economically speaking, like two incomes. Um, and so I, you know, you don't make a lot as a journalist and you don't make a lot as a photographer. Um, and so I'm always struggling, always working so hard. Um, but there's all these things that I want to achieve in my life and these small business ideas and ventures 
that I don't think I'd have the courage to do without knowing that I had a partner behind me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, like getting married is, is super important to me. I've been engaged twice, but never walked down the aisle because uh, I, you know, my parents were married for, God, was it like 44 years now, 45 years? Um, and like, I want that kind of love story, you know, where it's like you do it once <laughs> and then that's, it, yeah. it stays like that forever. Which again, it's probably that eternal optimist because what, 50% of marriages end in divorce, but mine's going to be the lucky one whenever it happens. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's this, there's this question that's, that's just kind of hanging here. And I, I wanted to ask it before we got too far away from, from it. But do you remember how your parents responded to those situations where people would tell you you couldn't do something because you're a girl? Yeah. Um, my, uh, you know, my brother actually bought me a t-shirt when I was, um, probably eight or nine that I wore under my hockey gear for God, like probably eight years until it was completely shredded. And it was, um, it said on the front, yes, I'm a girl. Yes. I'm an athlete. Yes. I'll kick your butt. Um, (laughs) and I used to wear it under my hockey clothes, you know, every single practice. Like I, I just think like we you know, I think as a family, we never saw gender um, as a limiting factor for what we could do in our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think my mom was very, like, very adamant about you define your own place in this world and you don't let anybody else define it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think sometimes she wants me to, to get out of my own way sometimes and stop, like, just pursuing things <laughs> just because someone said no. She's like, maybe you could let that one go. Um, and, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm learning, but I, I don't always get it right. Um, cause I just, you know, I, I don't like the idea of being told that, that I'm limited in this world. Um, mm-hmm. and that there's things that I can't achieve for whatever reason that might be. Um, you know, I think it's, it's, you know, it's cliche to say, but if you, if you work hard enough, if you really grind, you know, you can achieve whatever you, you want. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe maybe I wouldn't be the next Elon Musk, but I also wouldn't want to do what I'd have to do to, to be Elon Musk, nor would I want to be Elon Musk. Okay, yeah. But yeah, I think just, you know, I the idea of being limited for any reason, um, that was an external reasoning, just never really floated in my family. Mm-hmm. And you eventually went on to play hockey professionally, right? I did, yeah. So I... um. I went to Brown University to uh, to play D1 hockey there. And my senior year, I ended up um, quitting the team. It just wasn't a good fit. And I decided to go pro that year. Um, I didn't really have a plan. You know, it was like the end of my junior year. I didn't have any, any idea what I was going to do. I knew that I didn't want to give up hockey. Again, I wasn't going to let somebody else define uh, my life for me. So... I went over to the study abroad office and there was like one program left that was still taking applications and it was for Dublin, Ireland. And I was like, well, that's, that's serendipitous. <laughs> like I would love to go to Ireland. Like my name's yeah. Opera for goodness sakes. Um, and so I had applied to that program and got in and I was training all summer because they had uh, men's professional hockey was starting up in Ireland at the time. I think it, I think the league's now defunct, but it had been starting up. So I trained all summer And then I got a call from USA Hockey, like right before I was about to go to Ireland. And they said, hey, there's this Russian league. We want to send you over as um, kind of like an ambassador uh, for USA Hockey to go and play in this league. And I was like, Mm -hmm. well, I've, you know, I'd already been to Russia once at that point. And 
Russia had always been such an important place uh, in my heart. I've just always loved it. And so I ended up going to Dimitrov, which is right outside of Moscow, um, and signed the signed a contract with a team called Tornado or Tornado Moscow. Um, and I was the first North American to ever sign in the Russian Women's Elite League, which was super cool. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. But I, uh, I ended up playing there for, I was like commuting between Dublin and Moscow for this like semester abroad. And I was playing games both in the, the Irish League and um, the Russian League. I was just kind of like flip-flopping back and forth for tournaments. And then we got, um, we got to the end and played the European Championships. And at the end, uh, they decided to cut all the foreigners because they just didn't want to pay for us anymore. And I was mm, like, but okay. I have a contract. And they just ripped it up in my face. They're like, no, nah, you don't. <laughs> um, which is like probably the most Russian thing to happen ever. Um, and so I returned home in December of my senior year in college uh, you know, like, all right, what do I do next? Like, I'm not willing to give up hockey. And um, I had remembered that I had a contact um, out in Washington, D.C., and I reached out to him because he had known some international teams. And he's like, well, actually, there's this team in Vekwa, Sweden, which is in the south of Sweden, who's looking for a goalie to play in the first ever uh, Swedish Elite League. And it's starting up in a week. Like, do you want to do it? He's <laughs> like, sure do. Um, mm-hmm. so I jumped on a plane, um, you know, again, sight unseen and just, and, and played in Sweden for about three months. Um, and then came back to Brown for the last month of school, uh, just to graduate. And then immediately went off to play in the Canadian women's hockey league, um, which is, I think has always been considered like the best, uh, women's professional league in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I played out there in Toronto for, well, Mississauga for a year and then went back to Sweden and then went back to Russia and then... <laughs> Um, then my, uh, career finally ended in, uh, 2013 I got, uh, a hip injury and then subsequently, uh, contracted viral meningitis from a, a dirty back oh. injection. Um, and that kind of like ended my career in really spectacular fashion. <laughs> yeah. Meningitis is no joke. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's led to having, um, a neurologic disorder. So, um, that's something I'll be living with for the rest of my life, which is really tough. Um, it's something called ME. Um, it was formerly called chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, so, you know, it's like, well, I got to always live my career over and over again um, through this this pretty gnarly uh, yeah. um, neurologic disorder that I have now. Yeah. And real quick, you can cuss on this podcast. You oh, know, we were sitting here, we were sitting here talking about, about hockey and, uh, and I know that, um, at least the hockey players that I know. And even before we started this conversation, we were doing a mic check and, <laughs> uh, you know, you were, you were, you were cussing like a sailor. So let's, oh, let's get I back know. to that. I say like a sailor, like maybe, maybe like a trainee. <laughs> I know it's pretty hard for me to say like, Oh goodness. I was like, mm-hmm. I just want to say, Oh shit. But, uh, <laughs> Yeah. Oh, well, that's good to know. I didn't, I didn't know uh, what the airwave system is here. So this, this neurological disorder, ME, what does it look like? Yeah. um, So for me, it is, um, it's hand tremors um, constantly. It's uh, neuropathy. So um, really excruciating, you know, pain that'll just kind of come and go and there's not really Mm. anything you can do about it. Um, but I would say the most difficult part for me um, has been the it actually shuts off my ability to speak sometimes. Um, 
and I lose word recall pretty frequently. Um, if I get sort of any sensory overload, which, which happens a lot, um, I, I literally won't be able to speak it. I just can't remember words. I can't formulate them. Mm-hmm. Um, I have no short-term memory, so I usually have to plug into my phone uh, my home address, like the, the address of the hockey rink, like anywhere I go to a lot is actually like plugged into maps. Um, it's cause I get, I get lost. It's like almost having like dementia. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that's probably the closest way to explain what the, the neurologic symptoms are from it. And it's been really difficult cause I, you know, I had this, this great education, um, going to an Ivy league and having two master's degrees. Like there was a time where I spoke five languages, like language and, and communication and they're so huge to me. And then getting yeah. this illness, it just completely like rocked my world. Um, you know, there was, uh, when I first got diagnosed, I was told that like, I would be lucky if I could walk a block, um, at, like a week, <laughs> you know, like it was like that dire, um, cause huh. I'm in the moderate to severe category. Yeah. Um, and so like I worked my way up from being completely bed bound, um, to like being able to play hockey a couple times a week, rock climb three, four times a week. Um, so I guess, I guess, it, I guess it goes back to being told no. Um, mm-hmm. I, I was told by the Mayo Clinic that, you know, my whole life was going to change and I had to make all these changes and it has changed in a lot of ways, but I refused to let this thing define me. And I've, I've found ways to sort of like circumvent, um, some mm-hmm. of the symptoms. I, I can't completely eliminate them. They still happen. Um, but I know what the tales are now. And then I've also found cannabis, uh, has been just absolute life changer. Mm-hmm. Um, That's I, great. Was, I was, yeah, I was super late to the game where I was like, yeah, let me, let me smoke on a fatty for the first time at 34. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I remember going into uh, one of the shops here in town and being like, I've never tripped on pot. Can you tell me how to do this? <laughs> I tripped on pot. You know, it was like, I've, uh, I don't know. I've always lived above. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I went to the, you know, I, I like started slow with cannabis and, uh, I just, God, it was a game changer. Um, mm. You know, I'm like, I, I've really delved so deep into like the deep end with cannabis now because of, of how much it's healed me. I mean, it's, it's given me parts of my life back that I was told I'd never have. So yeah, it's, um, you know, it's tricky. I try to be an ambassador for it because uh, I think there's a lot of shame surrounding the illness or whatever because, and people don't understand it. They're like, oh, I'm tired too. And I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> or like, <laughs> oh, I have a hard time remembering words. No, you don't. <laughs> so, um, you know, I try to really, really hard to be an ambassador for it because it is, yeah. you know, according to the quality of life index, like your quality of life with this illness is actually like worse than being a cancer patient. Mm. Um, and a lot of people don't, don't realize that cause I look completely healthy on the outside, but it's all smoke and mirrors, <laughs> you know, like I'm very careful who I let into my inner sanctum because it can be really hard to see your friend or see me like all of a sudden my legs stop working, you know, they just won't move. Um, or I, I just, I can't remember who you are or where I am. Like, that's really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think even that harkens back to like wanting a partner. It's, it's very scary going through something like that. Um, when you have no one nearby, so my family doesn't live here. Um, and it can be really difficult. So I think like just even having a partner and just like the day-to-day life is so important to me because it's scary. You know, I, (laughs) what's going to happen if if I get hurt and I can't speak (laughs) and I have to try to call 911, like what's the, what's the plan there? 
You're like, that was the sad section of this uh, podcast. Thank you for listening. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I was going to ask, you know, um, you know, there's so many things to worry about. You know, healthy people can worry about stuff. Uh, People who are sick can worry about stuff. People that are terminal can worry about stuff. Um, Basically, people that don't need to worry, worry. And I wonder, and and, and now that I'm thinking about this, I, I think I'm maybe answering my own question in my head. And I wonder if it just gets back to you, you know, being that eternal optimist, you know, because if you, if you think about all of the, the bad things that could happen, it kind of just immobilizes you. It does. Yeah. It's, um, you get really overwhelmed thinking about, about those things. And like, I, didn't want to be somebody who gave up on life. And I, I mean, I'm going to be honest, like there were some really dark days. Like I would be lying if I said I, I hadn't attempted suicide before because it just, I felt like my whole life just exploded all of a sudden in 2013 where I was this like super fit jet setting athlete who like lived all over the world and like had a fan base and, and, and in multiple countries Um, And then all of a sudden I'm back in Alaska and I'm super sick. My hip is blown out. I'm told I can't play sports anymore. And it's just my whole identity just like just completely blew Mm -hmm. up. Um, Mm -hmm. And I I didn't know who I was anymore. And so I think um, a big part of me pushing through and and trying to find workarounds was because I like missed who I was. And I missed Mm -hmm. being the athlete that I'd been my entire life. I missed being this like happy person who was kind of bubbly and and enjoyed being out in the world and I I just become so recluse and I got to a point where I was like this is I looked in the mirror and I was like I literally don't recognize the person looking back at me Mm. um you know I'd I'd gained a ton of weight I just was super depressed and I'm like who is this girl (laughs) you know um and I just I made a conscious change I I split with my fiance at the time because it was a really toxic unhealthy relationship and the very next day was like, all right, we're, we're going to build your life back. Um, and we're going to get you back to that, like person you were, um, before the injury, before the illness. Nope. Sorry. Let me get the, let me check on the dog real quick. Luke, could you chill bud? Um, so yeah, I think like there was, I think that was kind of just the motivation behind that was missing the person who I was. Mm-hmm. One, just give me one second. Let me see if I can settle him down. Could you chill a little bit, buddy? Is he mellower if he just sits next to you? I'm going to try that, yeah. Yeah, because I've had people do that before. Yeah, let me get um, let me get some treats. He's super food, food motivated, so that might work. Okay. <laughs> yeah. okay. All right. Could you, could you do me a solid and sit down, please? Thank you. All right, I'm going to put in my hands so that they don't rattle. There you go. Okay. Down. Lay down, bud. Yeah, but like, I know it's, it's actually, it's crazy. Like incidentally, um, the dog was a really big part of my recovery. Um, I had, I had, he's my first dog ever. And you know, like when you get a dog, uh, or you have a child (laughs) that like, you don't get the option of being sick. You don't get the option of not getting out of bed. Like Mm -hmm. you have to. Um, and I think like when I took over, you know, full-time custody of, of the dog, it was like, all right, man, like, it doesn't matter if you're tired, like he's bored. (laughs) <laughs> and yeah, so yeah. you got to get out and you got to do stuff. 
Um, you know, and he's a, he's 80 pounds of pit bull, which was probably not a smart idea on my hand. On my <laughs> I was like, yeah, let me just get like the biggest, most unmanageable dog possible. Um, you know, and then he has some, uh, he has some behavioral issues that we work through, but, um, yeah, yeah, I think that, uh, I think I'd say cannabis and the dog sort of pulled me out of the funk. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, is that what contributed to you getting back to being that happy bubbly person that that you always have been yeah absolutely um you know i i say it a lot and people are kind of like he's just a dog but you know luke has been his name's luke um he's uh been sort of that bright light in my life that doesn't allow me to stop what i'm doing it doesn't allow me Mm -hmm. to feel sorry for myself um or you know to to not keep pushing forward because like at the end of the day, like I sounds so pathetic, but I have to keep a roof over my dog's head, <laughs> yeah. you know, and I, I have to keep him fed and I need to take him out for walks. He needs energy. He needs to be taken care of. And no matter how bad I'm feeling, I don't get a vacation from that. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's also, you know, like probably one of the biggest joys in my life too. Like he's an absolute nut. <laughs> um, I, I also like to call him cock block now that we can make those jokes. <laughs> um, so he's, uh, he's, he's on the struggle bus whenever I try to bring anyone over to the house. So he also kind of weeds out the, the bad guys, I'd say. Um, yeah. yeah, it seems like, but yeah, I just, you know, I, I've, I, I hated dogs too before I got him. And then I just, I don't know fell in love with him which is crazy because all he did was like poop and cry you know uh (laughs) like for how many months but he just became this like this really important tether for me I think in this world and this reason to like to keep pushing on to not let to not succumb to deep depression um because like I knew that no one was going to take on you know this like 80 pound pit bull with behavioral issues right like if I were to Mm -hmm. to do something to me then then he would like most likely be put down um, and I, I couldn't live with that. So as weird as it is to say, I think he's like kind of saved my life on, on a lot of instances. It sounds like you've, you've thought a lot about this, how your dog Luke has impacted your outlook on life, your perseverance. And then it also sounds like you weren't into dogs initially. So I wonder when that like transition happened. I think it was honestly like the first night we brought him home. Um, he, you know, he was only two months old. He's just this mm-hmm. like just this sweet little like kind of weird looking faced dog at the time because <laughs> puppies are <laughs> kind of weird looking. Like their eyes are super far apart. Um, so I kind of thought that he. I was like, oh man, did we get the stupid dog? Like <laughs> I didn't realize that their face was kind of take shape differently. I was like, ah, we got the dumb dog. Um, but like that first night having this like little being that was completely dependent on me. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I think that that was a life changer for me. You know, I don't have children in my life yet. Um, but he was about as close as you can get to that. And I remember like that first night he slept in his kennel. I slept on the floor right next to him and I like sang to him until he fell asleep. Um, and that, you know, after that, that first day, like watching him fall asleep to my voice, I was like, all right, the, this dog is going to change my entire life. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he really did, he really did get a little waxing poetic about a dog, but like, <laughs> he's just, you know, I, I think it, it doesn't matter what, what the creature is. I think there's, you know, spiritual bonds that we have with people, with animals. And I think there was just a spiritual bond that happened with us 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And uh, I'm, you know, as much a part of him as he is me. Yeah, I absolutely feel that. You know, I grew up with uh, with dogs. I love dogs. I grew up with a um, a black lab, and he was just like the the sweetest dog ever. And I got him. My parents got me him after I had been in a really bad car accident when I was 13 years old. Oh yeah. Um, and I was on crutches. I broke my femur. I had some really bad cognitive issues and they got me this dog and he followed me everywhere. Didn't need to put him on a leash. And the reason my parents got me him is because he, uh, he would give me company throughout the day because they both had to work and I would just be at the house all day. My, my brother had to, my brother or my younger brother, Colton, he had to go to school. My uh, older brothers were, one of them was moved out of the house and the other one was going to high school. And so like, I was just alone. And then even now, you know, fast forward uh, decades later, I have my cats yeah. and, and I never thought that I would be a cat person up until uh, my wife, Carrie and I got a cat in college and her name was kitchens. Her name is kitchens. She's still around. And she's just like, I realized that I'm like, my personality is more cat. Like, you know, like <laughs> her and I like really see eye to eye, the, the, you know, kitchens, because like when we want to hang out with each other, we hang out with each other. Yep. But then like when we're not feeling it, like she walks away from me, I walk away from her <laughs> or I'm just like, you know, I don't want to pet her. I push her away. Yeah. Uh, and we're just very much like that. Whereas like a dog, like when they want attention, you better give them attention. Oh yeah. Like this whole interview where he's been like out, <laughs> outside my door, like screeching. Yeah. That, yeah. Um, I will say, you know, like that, that part of, I do miss that part of cats. Cause I was a cat person growing up. Like I love okay. cats. Um, but like, I don't, yeah. And, and don't get me wrong. Like Luke drives me absolutely ape shit, um, (laughs) frequently where I'm just like, dude, enough. Like he he (laughs) talks as much as my ex, which I think like, that's the one carryover is like, why did you have to get that personality trait? (laughs) Um, (laughs) and I have no problem shading my ex as you can tell. Um, so yeah, like he's just a giant talker, which does drive me absolutely insane. Um, But, you know, I I think during COVID, at least it was nice. Like we had uh, full on philosophical conversations about the world. uh, You know, like I I couldn't imagine going through COVID COVID completely alone without having, um, you know, something by me. But don't Mm -hmm. get me wrong. He drives me absolutely insane, like 99% of the time. But that 1% is pretty glorious. So I think that's pretty common with uh, people that we love is they they drive us insane as well. Oh, dude, 100%. You're like, oh, like, <laughs> I was, uh, I saw this meme the other day. It was actually pretty funny um, about, it was about moms. And it was like, oh, you know, our generation's so mean to our mom. We're like, no, we're not. And then I like fast forwards to a guy looking down at his phone with like, it says mom popping up. He's like, ah, not this shit again. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh man, I feel so called out right now. <laughs> but yeah, I think, you know, I think that's just the nature of relationships. Um, you know, I think the older I get too, uh, even just relating to my mom, to the dog, to the, to the world, I, I realize that it's okay to tell people like, Hey, I need space. <laughs> like, yeah, totally. Uh, yeah. You know, I think the older you get the, the deeper and, and more, you know, robust your relationships get. And I think that people understand that, you know, I think that people, 
uh, respect that, but then also respect like the honesty, Mm -hmm. you know, instead of just like dodging phone calls, like I usually try to send a text, you know, it's like, Hey, I'm, I'm like in bed right now. Like, can we, and it, it always sounds funny because like, I'll say this to like my best friends. I'm like, can we schedule a time to talk? And they're like, what are you talking about, dude? I am kind of one of those guys. Yeah. Because like, I mean, my schedule is just always so packed and I've done really good work at uh, making sure that I have my weekends completely off and dedicated to Carrie, you know, because when I initially started crude, it was just like, this is a 24 seven thing. You know, it's like, I'll answer my phone, you know, any time of the day, any time of the weekend. And, you know, I realized that, Hey, like I'm, I'm wasting precious time you know, with the people that I love, with, with Carrie, with, uh, you know, my mom, my dad, you know, all these people. And, uh, so, yeah. So I think that, um, letting friends know that, Hey, it's, you know, eight, nine o'clock. Like we're watching a show. I think that that's fine. That's just funny. You have to schedule it. It's, uh, (laughs) my, um, one of my best friends, Emma Hill, which I'm, I'm sure a lot of the listeners will be familiar with her. Uh, she's a musician, you know, she's the same way. Like she has to schedule everything <laughs> and he's yeah. a driver crazy. She's like, well, like, like, let's look at our phones now. And I'm like, why do I need to look at my phone? She's like, for your schedule. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, <laughs> what? And which is like stupid because I have like no short term memory. So you're like, why are you not using a calendar? <laughs> but <laughs> I, I don't know. I've always just like, I'm pretty fluid with, uh, with the way that I do things. I think mostly that that's an adopted quality. I used to have a giant poker up my ass. Uh, after mm. prep school, you know, and like everything has to be regimented. Um, but after having an illness where you're like, I don't know how I'm going to be tomorrow. I don't know how I'm going to be feeling in an hour. Um, mm. I just kind of gave up on schedules and was like, yeah, we're just going to see what happens, which I think drives most people crazy. Um, but you know, it's actually, it's kind of freeing too, to, to not, yeah. you know, schedule out your life so much. Although I'm listening to you thinking like, I'm sorry, you have weekends. That's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> what? what? Wait, what, what do you what do you do with free time? I don't even I don't even know what that feels like. Um, so, and dear listeners, you've now reached the uh, self help portion of today's <laughs> podcast. <laughs> so, you now have two options for your life: absolute absurdity and craziness, or like scheduled and have a life. You take your pick. <laughs> Under a Facebook post about Russia, you said that. You love that you will forever get to say you survived a giant oh, meteor no. <laughs> hitting your town. What's that story? Yeah. Okay. Well, all right. So I'm just going to say in preface that like Russia is one of those places where you're going to love or you're going to hate. And there's no in between. Uh, I would say most Westerners are going to absolutely hate it. <laughs> um, but for those savvy, adventurous souls uh, who can laugh um, at craziness, aka thank you, mom, um, they are going to love Russia. So I uh, was there in Chelyabinsk at the time, which is uh, right across the Ural Mountains. It's um, in Siberia. I had just been transferred from my team in Ufa, which is on the other side of the Ural Mountains. Um, that, that was a whole sketchy story. But anyway, so I'm in, this, I'm in this other town. I'm sleeping on the floor because I had bed bugs. Um, and my coaches came over and just took the entire like sofa bed and just pitched it over the side of the apartment building because apparently that's what you do. Um, and so I'm sleeping on the floor. I've got bed bug bites everywhere. I, I have my credit card had been um, 
had been fraudulent or something someone had taken it so I had no money I was like cooking ramen out of a out of like a tea kettle you know like just absolute like ghetto and um I'm sleeping on the floor and all of a sudden I just like felt this atmospheric pressure and I like wake up I'm like god that's weird and I like look out the window and I see all these people like they just looked like turkeys you know in the rain like looking up at the sky I'm like what the hell is everyone looking at and mm-hmm. then all of a sudden you hear this boom like this huge sonic boom i'm like holy shit and it was the meteor like entering the atmosphere and then you see this giant like space rock (laughs) coming like (laughs) right right through the town it like blew out the windows um of like tons of apartment buildings around town oh my gosh it blew out my window so i i was luckily on the balcony so i didn't get like the glass in me so i was like oh okay cool like now i have glass that's that's great (laughs) Um, it like cracked our rink in half, like just absolutely insane. Um, and now in my, uh, my decision-making was, um, I'm going to text my parents who are in Hawaii and just say, Hey, I'm okay. Just letting you know. And then I turned off my phone, um, (laughs) because I I was like, I think it might be like a bomb, you know, or like, there's like missiles, like, I don't know what's going on. And I'm like, look, life, life's already pretty shitty here. So (laughs) if I'm going to die, I'm going to die in my sleep. Um, cause it's like at that point I'm like covered in bed bug bites, like sleeping yeah. on the floor of like <laughs> of this Russian apartment with like no utensils, no money. I was like, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> um, and so, yeah, no, I can, uh, I can honestly say that I survived a meteor. Uh, I also bought the shirt because clearly Russians made, uh, made commemorative shirts. It's one of my proudest <laughs> possessions. Yeah, like what the fuck? Like, of course I would have a space rock, like just come and crash into your town. Did you go see it? No, I no. I was no. I was like, watch the little aliens come out. Like, I'm an optimist, but I'm still a realist. Okay. <laughs> like, you know, like, who knows? But um, yeah, I know there was a lot of people that went and tried to find it, but it was just like, what the hell? Like, did this is this real life? <laughs> and so like I had uh, it was a couple weeks ago. Yeah, I had um bronchitis. And I'm, like, sitting on the couch, and I'm watching Discovery Channel, like, Secrets in the Ice, and all of a sudden, they're, like, doing the second bit, and I'm, like, watching the camera zoom in, I'm, like, holy shit, that's Chelyabinsk. And then they go, and this little Russian town was rocked by a giant meteor, and I was, like, that's my town! <laughs> so, like, I was, like, so excited. So I'm just sitting on the couch here, like, coughing up a lung, being, like, yeah, I remember the meteor. <laughs> like... I, uh, you know, I, I, I'm happy for my future children because I'm going to have so many stories to regale them with. Um, <laughs> the meteor is probably going to be on the top of that list. But yeah, now I've just now I've like survived like multiple economic crises and a pandemic and a meteor and a giant earthquake in Alaska. Like we're crushing it. And I have this note to ask you about the time you got kicked out of the Diamond Center Mall. Oh man, I know. God, yeah, yeah. Your crude podcast, uh, like, remember when things are awesome? Yeah. <laughs> and so, my, I know my friend commented on it. I was like, oh man, I know Cody's gonna ask me about this. <laughs> I, could, I knew that was gonna happen. Um, uh, um, yeah. So we were, uh, God, it must have been like twelve. So we were in eighth grade at the time, and like you know, I mean, the Diamond Center is where you went to hang out. When you're in middle yeah. school and they used yeah. to have the Sanrio store, which by the way, was amazing and they need to bring it back. But like my friends and I, we just like walk in the mall and stuff. And then I had the brilliant idea of um, riding the elevators up and down the uh, to the business floors and jumping every time it got to the floor. 
you know, because then it, you get this like zero gravity moment that's like kind of scary. But then I found mm-hmm. out later, like the elevator could have crashed. But, you know, neither here nor there. Um, and so we kept doing it for like 20 minutes. Like we just every floor just jump, jump. Yeah. <laughs> and so we we get down to like the base floor where the boss goes as again. And we open the door and there's some mall security standing right there. We're like, oh, shit. <laughs> and my friend uh, Stephanie was like, just, you know, had to. Uh, was like terrified of her parents and I think they were a little more strict than mine mm-hmm. um, and she's like you know crying like oh my god O'Hara and I'm like it's gonna be fine and these guys were like you have to stand right on this one square of like tile next to the door um, while your parent while you wait for your parents to come and we were like how are you gonna know if we leave <laughs> <laughs> but my friend Steph was so scared she's like we have to stay here because like we're gonna get in trouble and I'm like no 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 whatever we just go um, but I, so I ended up like walking around the mall and we got caught a second time. Um, cause I'm that, I'm a rebel. Um, <laughs> and, and then that time they actually did call our parents. Um, and they had to come and pick us up and like Steph was in tears and like really remorseful. And I was like, I don't know why they're so upset. Um, and so, yeah, we, we got, uh, we got 86 from the diamond mall for like a month or something. <laughs> Which I don't just like kind of an empty threat, you know, back in like 1999. It's like, what do you, what do you, you guys have cameras? Like, how are you going to check this? That is true. Yeah. I mean that, I feel like, um, it was kind of a rite of passage to get kicked out of the diamond center mall. I remember I, uh, I got in trouble one time. We went to this restaurant across from the movie theater, me and a, me and some buddies and, you know, we're sitting there and, uh, we order fries and I end up like, like dumping a bunch of ketchup. I think it, it must've been too much ketchup and I must've just being like a snot nosed kid, like wasting ketchup. And then the owner, he's like this tall, skinny guy. He's like looking over at me and then we end up leaving. We're going to this movie and he's like, Hey, get back here. And I was like, no. And I just started running (laughs) for for no reason at all. Like just running from this guy. Um, And he ran after me and good Lord, this guy could run, right? Like he is, he's right there behind me. I run through the entire mall. I'm jumping down sets of stairs. I'm like, like weaving and dodging people and, you know, going down the escalator, going out the door into the parking lot We, you know, he eventually catches up to me in the Walmart parking lot. And this guy was not stopping, you know, and I'm, I was like a fast runner when I was a kid Yeah. and this guy was, you know, he had more, uh, stamina than me and he caught up with me and I was like, and I start laughing. I'm like, I can't believe you followed me all the way out here. And he, he grabs me by the arm and he drags me back into diamond center and, makes me sit down, you know, in his restaurant. He calls the security over and he tells the security everything that happened. And, you know, they, they recall it, you know, they're, they're reiterating it back to him. He's like, so this kid used too much ketchup. And he's like, yes. And, and they're like, you know, they look at him and they're like trying to figure out how to like manage this situation. And eventually they were like, do you have something to do? You know, they're asking me, I'm like, I'm going to see a movie. They're like, go see the movie, you know? And so they just let me go. But, uh, I, that was like the only time that was like a scene. 
For too much ketchup, good God. They would have hated me because, like, I'm notorious around my friend groups for, like, using a bottle of ketchup at every meal. (laughs) I just can't believe you ran that back. Yeah, I don't know what my deal was. I I was maybe just trying to be cool in front of my friends. I'm, like, thinking, like, wow, like, that's, you know, what, second floor and then opposite direction of the Walmart. I mean, that's impressive. I would have been winded. I was winded, but he was like, this guy was an athlete. I was like, we're done. I've had enough guy, enough of these piss ants with their ketchup. It, it's, uh, <laughs> it reminds me, so I, this is like going to be an old lady moment, but I, I go to bingo on Friday nights with uh, one of my friends, which is so pathetic, but we go. Um, and I always order like a cheeseburger there. And like the chick is like, she, she's like a ketchup Nazi. I'm like, can I get th- like six ketchups? And she looks at me and she's like, six? I'm like, actually eight? <laughs> like, every time. I'm like, and I have to start bringing my own bottle because like she is so incredulous. Like, why do you need eight ketchups? I'm like, there's a lot of fries in this basket. Like, come on, man. <laughs> like, like, I need all the ketchup packets. Like they're behind the counter, so you can't get them yourself. And like, they she lock usually, them up. Yeah, she only gives like, so like typically she only gives you two ketchup packets. Like you get two. And I've had to like work up the courage to be like, I need the eight, <laughs> but I'm really working my way up to what I need, which is 14. <laughs> I've, determined that's, I've determined that's the lucky number. So, like, I'm, yeah, we, we would have been screwed, Cody. I, I would have been like, well, I need this whole bottle, man. I don't know what you want from me. <laughs> the ketchup bandits. <laughs> oh my God. Can, can we get t-shirts? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. The they'll, be, they'll be big in Russia. Oh my God. It might be so huge in Russia. It's going to blow up. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> you know, for your next for next Christmas, you're getting a hat that says Ketchup Bandit, right? That's happening. <laughs> That's officially happening. I'm just going to wait till I have a job again. I'll wear it. I'll wear that shirt. Dude, you better. <laughs> just the selfies with it. Oh my God. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's how you got kicked out. I mean, I did hella shenanigans at, at Diamond Center. Like, I used to sneak in from the Diamond Athletic Club and, like, sneak in to go skate uh, at the, you know, the ice rink because there was, like, this tunnel that people didn't know about um, that went, like, under the Diamond Center and it would pop up in, like, pop up in the back of the skate shop by the uh, Zamboni. So we'd, like, chill by the Zamboni and, like, wait till no one was looking and then, like, run across um, (laughs) so we could skate for free every day. Yeah. I I was kind of a hellion growing up, honestly. Like, (laughs) I, like, I, like, was stealing cigarettes at, like, 10 years old, like, I was like, I want to be a cool kid. And then my mom caught me uh, or didn't even catch me. She just noticed that I was doing something different. She's like, do you have something you want to admit to me? And I just <laughs> cracked like Catholic guilt, like nobody's business. I was like, I did this and I'm really sorry. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I, you know, I like tried to be cool. And then I realized that like I have way too much Catholic guilt on me. And my mom, like she didn't like she would just look at you like square and you knew. Yeah. She didn't even have to know that you did something wrong. She could just assume that you did something wrong and I would just spill. Everything. Dude, it still works. I'm 36 and I still do it. <laughs> it's pathetic. <laughs> Should we move on to some Anchorage Press questions? <laughs> sure. Let me just get a sip of water. I'm just dying about the ketchup bandits. <laughs> like that. <laughs> just like, <laughs> I want to draw a logo for that so bad. <laughs> that's that's gonna have to happen. Oh, okay. I'm gonna cough once too, and then we're good. <coughs> All right, my lungs are good. We're good. Hit, hit so me before... with the the NDA questions. <laughs> <laughs>
so before you took on the editor position, you had been writing for the press for what was it? Six years? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, I think it was six years. I think I had been with them for seven total. So six. Yeah. What did that look like? Um, so I originally, I was working at the University of Alaska Anchorage, I guess I could say UAA because this is an Alaskan podcast, just kidding. Um, and so I was working at UAA in the fine and performing arts division. And there was a uh, student there um, named Steffi, who was, uh, I think, doing design for the press at the time. Um, and I found out and I just kind of, you know, boldly went up to her and I was like, hey, like, how do you get to do press picks? Like, how do you get to be a photographer for the press? Um, and she gave me um, Zakaya's contact info and I reached out to Z and, um, you know, got the Z kind of got me in there. But it was mm-hmm. like doing the like really shitty gigs that no one wanted at like 2 a.m. on a Wednesday at Coots. And so I would shoot like all the gigs that nobody else wanted to and like for hopes that I would get to be in press picks. Um, and about like two, three months into that, I just wanted to. I wanted to try to shoot bigger. Um, you know, I'd been seeing the work that Carrie Tasker was doing and mm-hmm. um, was such a huge fan, and I, I wanted to get to that level. Um, so, you know, I reached out to Z and was like, hey, like, do you think I could ever shoot, like, a cover or, like, a story or something? And she's like, oh, well, I'll introduce you to Susie Buchanan, um, the editor, and, you know, we'll see, uh, we'll see what she says. So I went in and met Susie uh, just to talk about that, and... Um, you know, we ended up talking and just kind of going all over the place. And she finally just looks at me and she's like, so you're kind of smart. And I'm like, I mean, I think so. She's like, can you write? And I'm like, well, fuck, I went to Brown. I hope so. And she's like, great, we're going to try you as a writer. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) Um, And uh, my first story was just like, it was so complex. It was like about the Jewish museum opening but simultaneously, there was like an Israeli diplomat who was here who was doing a dedication to Alaska Airlines, who was like one of the first airlines to help ship um, people out of Palestine um, on these mm. planes that um, that were like designed like eagles because it, it fed into this um, narrative that they had within their uh, their religion about being saved on the wings of eagles. So it's just like insanely complex story, right? And that's yeah. my first one out the gate. Um, and I still don't, you know, it's like, even as a, as a seasoned writer now, I'm like, I don't even know how I would have wrote that piece. Um, but apparently I did okay. Um, and my for my next story, I was like, hey, this band Buck Cherry that I really love is coming into town. Like, do you mind if I try to see if I can get an interview? She's like, sure, you can try. Um and so I kind of cold called L.A., um, found their management online, cold called L.A. and was like, hey, I really want to write a story about them. They're in town. And I had like no hopes that this was going to work. But they um, they ended up like setting me up with an interview in person, which like never happens for visiting mm-hmm. bands. Um, and so I like my second story was like sitting in the, the dressing room with Josh Todd um, and Keith Nelson, so the guitarist and the singer of Buck Cherry and doing this interview. And for me, it was like this life changing experience, like, holy shit. I can't yeah. believe I'm like, I'm talking to these guys that I just like this music I love. Um, and I think I caught the singer on just like one of those days where he just felt like talking, like he felt like being real. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I remember like the interview when it really switched was when I was like, so, you know, like, what's the day, what's a day in the life of Buck Cherry? And he starts going like, well, we do this and we do that. And he goes, nah, you know what? Fuck that. <laughs> And he like, <laughs> he like puts like a piece of beef jerky in his mouth and he leans forward. He's like, I'm going to tell you what the fucking life of a, of Buck Cherry is. 
you wake up in a parking lot. You don't know where the fuck you are. You have to take a shit, but you don't do one in the van <laughs> because, like, that's you don't do that. So then you got to find, like, a Walmart parking lot to park the thing and take a shit somewhere. And then, like, then you have to do all these press junkets with all these journalists who ask you the same fucking questions. You're sitting, I'm sitting there like, Ooh, yeah, that sounds terrible. Um, <laughs> and then he's like, and then you go on stage and you, like, work your ass off and then you get off and then you get in the, you know, you, you get back in, like, the the touring bus and then that's it you know and it was just this like really candid answer and it's yeah. funny because the, then the guitarist goes like but we really love it and then it, yeah, so like, <laughs> it was like it was funny because like the one guy was just like you know what I, i'm gonna be really real here and i'm gonna say exactly what happens so i get uh, i get done with this interview and i'm like driving um down uh seawolf drive um heading towards like moose's tooth and I look on the side of the road and the singer I just interviewed um, was like, had his hands like jammed in his pockets and was like hoodie on. And I was like super nondescript. Like you'd never know that this guy wasn't, he honestly looked like kind of a homeless guy walking on the, the street. Mm -hmm. um, and you'd never know that it was the singer. And then, you know, two hours later, I see him on stage with this whole different persona. And it was this like really transformative experience for me as a journalist to, to see this whole picture of a person mm -hmm. um, and to see a musician um as 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 the person not the bravado and so i wrote this story um and it was called glorious chaos and I, I think to date it's probably still one of my favorite stories i've ever written um and susie just fell in love with it uh david holthouse uh had even read it and said that i had chops and like that was the that was the turning point for me where i was like okay i guess i'm a writer what was that story? And uh, it's probably narcissistic, but I have it framed on my on my wall in my office just to kind of remind me of like, you know, like the fear I had with calling L.A. and like cold calling and making this happen and interviewing this person, you know, in person. Um, mm -hmm. And it's kind of like that reminder that like yeah, I, I can do things that I don't even think I can do. Yeah. Yeah. The worst thing they're going to do is say no. And then the more often you do those things, the more often you know you can do them. Yeah. And, you know, like for me, like I'm a forced extrovert. Like I, it is, it was like excruciating for me to try to make cold calls. Like I would panic, like I'd have panic attacks, um, mm. doing it. So this was like a really, really huge reach for me to do that. Um, you know, even as a photographer, cause I'd been a photographer before I was a writer, like I would use this 300 millimeter, like long focal lens, um, so that I could photograph people from far away, like snipe photos instead of like interact with people. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I kind of defined, like my career was, was really defined on like just observing the world, but not engaging with it. Um, mm. and so becoming a journalist really changed so much about me and like, it made me this really like kind of outgoing person. And I think really empathetic person, um, and and that's kind of how I approach photography and, and writing now. Uh, none of this would have happened if it wasn't for the press. You know, I, I think it's been this really like life defining thing for me was uh, was starting at the Anchorage Press. You know, the Anchorage Press has been such a scrappy institution for so long. Is it weird to think that you'll be the last editor of it? Yeah, it's um, you know, I think I'm still still kind of coming to terms with, um, with the loss of, of the paper in the community. Um, you know, I had these really lofty goals, uh, when I took over, like one of the things that was super important to me, and it's something we kind of talked about, um, when we were doing mic checks, but was really lifting up the disenfranchised communities. So I made it a huge priority of mine to focus on BIPOC and queer culture. 
um, and mm-hmm. to also have equal representation of men and women on the cover. Um, it wasn't something I like actively talked about. It was just something that I did. Um, and it was something that was super important to me. And now, you know, you, you pick up an ADN and it's just straight news and you're missing all this like arts and entertainment and music and profiles, you know, all these stories because there's not space in them for in traditional media. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like, that's probably the hardest part for me in seeing the press go is just what it means to these communities that are no longer being represented. Um, and that, that honestly like breaks my heart. Um, I feel like it's a huge hole. You know, it's like, I think I'm still coming to terms with it, you know, three weeks later um, and what that looks like and for Anchorage. And it, it's sad. I think it's a really sad day. Yeah. Yeah. One of the first things that I did when I became the editor of the press, you know, this was back in 2017 and it only really lasted for about three months. But I reached out to past editors to get advice. I even reached out to editors of alt weeklies across the country to introduce myself, you know, just to open up that line of conversation. Do you remember the first thing you did after getting the job? Yeah. Um, the first thing I did, uh, was <laughs> fix the layout. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to return the paper to when I saw it in its heyday, which when my opinion was, was under Susie Buchanan, um, mm-hmm. you know, I think she, she had a lot more of a budget, uh, to put into it, but, the paper was well designed. The stories were insightful. They were hard hitting and had like a point of view. Like my entire goal with the press was to try to bring it back to that. Um, and so like one of the first things I did was was like changing the templates. Like I was doing uh, most of the layout for the paper as well um, and designing it because I thought like it was a whole package and I wanted it to look, um, I wanted it to look different than the ADN and, and the Frontiersman and you know, even the Daily News Miner, I wanted it to have its unique, unique look. Um, so mm-hmm. I took, you know, I took most of the ads off the covers and just really tried to return it to what I, I thought was in its heyday. Um, yeah, so I think, I mean, honestly, that was like the first thing I did was just like, I just pulled a complete 180 um, on the way it looked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, um, and like really tried to pour a lot of like, um, you know, my own photography into it and stuff. Cause I think over the years people started to sort of see the press, um, and at least the imagery, um, became really highly related to me. Um, cause mm-hmm. I have kind of a gritty style and I think it fit with the press really well and all weeklies in general. So yeah, I think just changing the look was the first thing I did. How do you feel like that turned out? I think it turned out well, you know, like I'm proud of, um, I'd say like 90% of the papers that we put out. Um, you know, it's hard cause I think I was the only editor to ever work with like no staff. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I talked to former editors about it um, to ask for advice and they were like, well, you know, have your layout people do this. And I'm like, I don't have those. They're like, well, have your your social media people do that. I'm like, yeah, I don't have those either. They're like, what about your photographers? No writers. Not really. Um, And so, um, you know, I, I, it was really just like a labor of love, just trying to to put it together every week. You know, I'd go on these like thirty six hour work benders from Tuesday night into Wednesday, to um to design, uh, copy edit, you know, rewrite when necessary, and then have like four to five bylines a week, uh, that were coming from me, and then I think I did about like ninety percent of the photography too, plus all the layout. Mm. So it was um. You know, we just we just didn't have a budget, you know, when I took over and I was trying and fighting tooth and nail to to keep the paper alive and viable um, because I think it's such an important thing for the community to have. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's like 
you know, you're putting in like 90 to 100 hour weeks. You know, I hope you're turning out with product you kind of like. Yeah. But, you know, I, it just it's sad because I, I think I never got to to make it exactly what I wanted to be because I just didn't have just didn't have the resources, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, something that 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 really kind of bummed me out was these longtime contributors uh, that wanted to be a part of the paper. And they would reach out to me and they would ask to be a part of the issue. And, and I'd always have to say no, you know, because the budget wasn't there. And so, you know, I'd have to, you know, piecemeal what that issue is going to be without like these great contributors that have been contributing and being part of the press for so long. Yeah, no, we had the same issue, you know, like, and I just, it was, it was difficult, right? So under the, the previous editor, the paper had, and especially in the last like two years, you know, like around the COVID time, um, it had transitioned from being this like arts and entertainment paper to being this like political rag, right? Like it just went in this like completely different direction. Um, mm-hmm. You know, even I stopped writing for a little while because I was uncomfortable with the direction in which it was going. I was like, this is not the paper I signed up for. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of, we lost a lot of readers um, there, which is really, and a lot of, you uh, in a lot of advertising dollars because the paper wasn't staying true to its mission. Um, and then we lost a lot of writers that way. And so, you know, when I took over, we only had, um, God, you know, I think maybe like two or three writers that were consistently writing, you know, and were long time, long time writers. Um, and, you know, they were slowly kind of just, I think, done, you know, with the, with the experience of the press. So like my first, you know, a couple months I lost, uh, I lost Dr. Fermento, which is really painful. Mm. Yeah. And then uh, we had a newer guy who'd been for like a year um, who was this amazing food food writer. Like, I think I, I still say like he was my best writer, um, you know, and then he he ended up dropping out. And then um, I had a falling out with a few different writers who didn't appreciate my editorial style, which is pretty hands on. Um, you know, I'm really anal retentive about typos um, and I want things to be like as good as they can. And I think this kind of harkens back to just going to prep school and having that like giant poker up my ass about everything. Um, and so like, I, I know that as an editor, um, I pissed, you know, pissed people off. Um, and I definitely had some writers who felt like they were disrespectful or disrespected, which was, you know, definitely never my intention. My intention was always just to try to like make the paper the absolute best that I could. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. and my budget, you know, to put this thing together each, each month, which could have been between four and five editions was $3,000. Yeah. Which is absolutely nothing, you know, uh, to, to pay writers and, so, you know, I, what I tried to do was take on more bylines myself so that, like, I could invest in the writers who had been with the press for a long time so I could pay them something that wasn't as embarrassing, you know, like, mm-hmm. going to, to someone who'd written for the paper for, like, 10 years and being like, hey, I can give you $50. I mean, that's that's mortifying. Yeah, it is. And I also, you know, like, it's hard to get get writers at that rate, which I understand. Like I'm a freelance writer. I would be pissed if someone's like, Hey, $50 as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that would kind of also, you know, left a lot of people feeling, feeling neglected or like angry, but it was like, yeah, I just, I don't have a budget to pay you what you're worth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sorry, you know, I can't run you as often or I, I can't give you as many stories cause I just, I don't have the budget. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, other writers, 
had become accustomed to not actually being edited ever, um, copy edited. Uh, mm-hmm. and so like that definitely put a strain on stuff. So, you know, I, I guess this is my public apology to anyone I may have offended, uh, or pissed off, you know, but I think I, I did the absolute best that I could with the situation I was given, um, to try to make it viable for everybody. Mm-hmm. Something that I just keep thinking and, you know, this thought came before you were there, uh, came before I was there and it has to do with like kind of the death of print. Mm -hmm. You know, I wonder if a paper, a physical paper, even a digital paper in a city like Anchorage is even viable anymore. You know, I feel like it is, but, and this is one of the models that I had, I had pitched to, um, to the owners of the press. I was like, hey, how about we switch this to like a biweekly or a monthly for a print edition, but we can still mm-hmm. have daily content um, so that people can still have that physical copy in their hand because it's still really cool like for a local artist when you open the paper and you're like, I'm in the paper. Like it still has that nostalgia and that excitement. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, even Portugal the Man, when I, when I interviewed them and they were up here, they were so fucking stoked to be on the cover. And I'm like, mm-hmm. are you guys kidding me? You're Portugal the Man. They're like, we are so excited. I'm like, weren't you just in Rolling Stone? <laughs> But, like, you know, to, to them, to Alaskans, like, being in the Anchorage Press was akin to being in the Rolling Stone. Yeah, And yeah. so, you know, I don't think that you can get rid of a print, like, a print magazine entirely. I just think it needed to be sort of switched around a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and we needed to move into some more digital multimedia storytelling. Like, we had slowly started doing it, you know, my six-year tenure, doing, like, some podcasts. I, I had tried to bring back basement tapes to the best of my ability, which was, like... And they, I mean, for, if you would have seen how they were filmed, you would have been like, oh, good God. Uh, so for, <laughs> for like how they were done, you know, like me operating three cameras and a cell phone and like trying to teach myself how to do sound, they're pretty impressive <laughs> for, yeah. like, for having absolutely nothing. But I think that's the way that the media is going. I don't think you can tr- be just a print, a print publication anymore. And I also don't know, you know, I think people have become really accustomed to the idea of the magazine model, right? Where it's like you have this like content that goes online, but then you have a monthly magazine. Um, And I think people are comfortable with that. And I feel like that would have been the direction to go. Um, And I think we're going to see as as the markets continue to change, I think we're going to start seeing more of a push towards like having less of a print product and more of a digital. Um, but even the digital, like, it's going to be interesting to see how people find a way to differentiate themselves. Like, what's going to make your publication cool? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I definitely still had ideas for the press. And I was I had these high hopes of, like, ah, we can make this happen. Um, you know, so it was a bummer to not get to not get to make any of those happen. Because I think I think it would have been cool. <laughs> yeah. You know, something that David Holthouse told me at a certain point when. I was there for my very short tenure. He was like, I was impressed that they were allowing you to do all of the things that you were doing. I guess maybe like the subtext was, I thought I was wrong for a second. And then, and then, you know, the powers that be at the press did exactly what everybody who knows them, uh, they did exactly what they were expected to do how they were expected to react i wonder was there a point where you're like you know i'm doing it and this is turning out great yeah that was day one um you know they wanted me to use yeah they wanted me to use these paginators out in the philippines um and they were lovely people like really wonderful and i formed like nice friendships with them however 
if you look at an Asian-based paper, uh, the layout is just completely different. Um, it's not dynamic. And people in those markets are very used to seeing ads placed everywhere and cattywampus and like, you know, crazy jumps in a million different places. Um, I was like, yeah, we're not doing that. Um, so I like immediately from my very first day in the office, like reworked uh, an InDesign template and was like, we are going heavy on photos. Like mm -hmm. we're bringing mm -hmm. this back to the glory days. So like I went in like guns a blazing like day one. Um, Cause I, you know, I had this like long history with the press already and I had this intuition of what I wanted to do, but you know, like you, um, you know, I was told don't, do not take this job mm -hmm. <laughs> by a lot of people. And honestly, I turned it down like three or four times. Um, they kept offering it to me and I was like, I, I don't want this um, because I sort of knew the, the back end um, of it and what it was looking like. But then uh, the part of me that is like, hey, you told me no, I should do this. <laughs> um, yeah, kind of yeah. kicked in, right? And so, yeah, I just, you know, and then I, there was a lot of, a lot of design choices. They were, they were like, well, I don't know if we want you to do this. And I was like, cool, I'm doing it. Um, <laughs> and they, you know, I think the, the company ended up really liking it. Um, and I started getting feedback from readers that they were excited to see the paper looking like it, it had, you know, in previous mm -hmm. years and like they had expected it to. Um, and that was kind of an encouragement, but man, you know, I'll tell you like trying to put together you know, between like a 24 and 28 page paper, even sometimes 32 pages, uh, on a Wednesday, <laughs> mm -hmm. like in this like eight hour span, which you can't do, which is why I'd go on these 36 hour benders. It's a lot. It was exhausting, you know, and yeah. like, I, but I, you know, I think like other editors too, like it just sort of like put up with it because I felt like there was a greater good with the paper um, mm -hmm. and it was worth the sacrifice. Um, you know, I, it's funny cause I, I have this like fitness tracker ring called the aura ring. Um, and I just, you know, cause it was the new year. It just gave me my like year stats. <laughs> and I like mm -hmm. looked at my year stats and it was like Tuesdays and Wednesdays. My like readiness score was like 20 out of a hundred. <laughs> and then it was like, you average six hours of sleep. No, five hours of sleep this whole, like a night this oh. year. And I was like, holy hell. Um, yeah. I like when I, and then I like saw my sleep patterns and all this and like, I'm looking at the analytics and I'm like, wow, this is, I, I didn't realize that the impact on my health it was having, but I just, you know, I just kept plowing through cause I'm like, this has to stay here. This has to be something. And so like, it's, it's partly like really hard to be gone, but also like, it's kind of nice to, like, it was nice to sleep <laughs> and yeah, like kind of totally. catch up, you know, like I, I tried to go on a vacation twice, um, when I was during my tenure and like, I ended up working every single day of vacation just to get the paper out. Mm -hmm. And like, I know this probably sounds like a woe is me story. And I'm sure people are like, I've done that too. But you know, it's, I think the, the idea is you're not supposed to have to do that for work. <laughs> um, yeah. But I just, I really just believed in the, the higher principle of like why this paper needed to be here. And I wanted to fight for it. Um, you know, and, and like, I'm, know Nick Coltman who like founded the paper and I wanted to do it for him and I wanted to do it for all my previous editors like just wanted to it just really was so important to me to like keep it alive and make it viable and so it does feel a little bit like a personal failure even though I know there is nothing I could have done financially to help it but it's been hard you know coming to terms with that like it just I don't know I don't know how to process it yet I guess <laughs> my rambling that's the answer I'm not sure how to process everything yet to your point about working on vacation, I took one vacation 
while I was the editor, and it was a vacation that was already planned. It was to Kauai with my family and my wife, and I remember my wife was just getting so frustrated with me because I kept answering my phone, Yep. you know, and we were on the beach, and I answered my phone, and I just see her out of the corner of my eye running at me, oh, no. <laughs> and like, and she's like, put that phone away. Like she was, she was pissed, you know, yeah. because I kept answering the phone because, you know, like yourself, I'm thinking this thing is bigger than me. Yep. You know, this is, this is an institution yep. that I'm aware of past generations and how important this, this institution is to Anchorage. And so if I need to work on a vacation, that's, that's just what it's going to be. Exactly. But I keep thinking, you know, I've had so much time to to think about that time and then even my time as like a feature writer under Susie Buchanan. Yep. And just thinking like, were we just trying to breathe life into this dead thing? This thing that was already dead? It might know? have been, yeah. You know, well, and I think that, I think that's an interesting point you bring up too about it being an institution. You know, I, I think as the editor of the press, you become the face of the press. So mm-hmm. like, you know, it was like Susie was the press, and then when yeah, Matt Hickman yeah. was it was was it Matt Hickman was the press when you took over Cody was the press. Like you become this masthead for it, and so like if it doesn't work, it becomes this like personal failure, um, which I think is like dangerous. You know, uh, mm-hmm. like you should never tie so much of your self worth into a job, but something about the press's function within our community just lent itself to like. I'm going to like to, I'm going to do whatever I have to do. Like, Oh, I'm going to lose, like, Oh, I maybe just lost a kidney, but I still got to get the paper out, you know? And mm-hmm. it, it was, I still don't know, you know, why that happened. I don't, I, cause I, every editor I've talked to has felt the same way. Um, but I can't imagine that it's like that in, you know, in other jobs. Uh, so I, I, you know, I, I don't know. It's I'm it's something to like, definitely think about like, why, why is the press like one of those things that like you felt like you couldn't put down it had to be like, you just, you, you couldn't have a life outside of it. Now it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, I think we were all, you know, I think there were financial decisions along the way that were, that were tough that kind of had the press like going in the wrong direction and it might've needed some different leadership. And I'm not sure that the parent company that purchased the WIC, uh, purchased the WIC, sorry, WIC that uh, purchased the press. I'm, I don't think they were the the right people to do it. I think it needed to be purchased by like a hometown publisher. Um, Yeah. Someone who really understood what it meant and someone that was going to go to bat for it. And I think like Wick purchasing the press, I think that was kind of the beginning of the end, to be completely honest. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's no shade on Wick. It's just that, you know, they're a company based out of Arizona that has real no, like really no connection to Alaska and no matter how much Alaskans want to pretend that like we're, you know, we're part of the States, we really are our own entity. Mm-hmm. Like I don't, mm-hmm. you know, I get, I get just as pissed as the next person when I can't get shipping up here, but yeah. you know, maybe the shipping companies are telling us something like we really are our own little country here. Like mm-hmm. we're very different. And I think when an external company, and I think that happens in any market, like not any market, but like any different um, industry comes up here, they just don't quite grasp what it is to be Alaskan and what things are important to us and why. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that was the problem, you know, coming like as soon as it changed hands into an outside publisher, I think that was kind of the beginning of the end because they were never going to have the connection to it that Alaskans were going to have. 
Yeah, I love your idea of making the press into a monthly publication. You know, I think quality over quantity is the way to go right now, especially with these smaller budgets. Right. Yeah, no, exactly. And like, I, uh, you know, I really wish that I would have been given that opportunity um, or at least given the opportunity to like to, to do one last print edition that really paid homage to the press's history and, and mm-hmm. you know, in fact, like that, <laughs> when I left, when, when I got laid off, um, that's what I was working on was um, for the new year was a was a big celebratory, like 30 years of the press and a retrospective on like some of the stories that gained like national attention because we had, you know, quite a few. Like, I don't think people understand like the, the awards that the press won over the years because we were never yeah. really a braggadocious paper. We we're just like, oh, yeah, we won, whatever. You know, we we weren't like the ADN where we we're going to be like Pulitzer Prize winning. <laughs> we were just like, yeah, we did it, whatever. <laughs> you know, um, we were just kind of the cool kids who didn't brag about that stuff. But I wanted to like, as the editor, it was like so important to me to like put out one edition that like actually paid homage to all of that and like mm-hmm. really let the community know how much we'd done. And so I think my greatest regret is that I didn't read the writing on the wall earlier um and seeing it as like okay i think this is gonna this is gonna get shut down um and putting that edition out like that's the only part that's still like oh man that kills me that i i didn't Mm -hmm. get to do that for the community but you know it was um it was pretty blindsided you know when it got shut down it was uh it was like you have 30 minutes to like shut your internet your your email down and that's it so Mm -hmm. there wasn't really a chance to say goodbye um yeah which hurts is there an article you wrote or maybe that you helped publish that you're most proud of? Um, like, let me think. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's one that didn't, you know, it's funny because it didn't get as much attention, but it was something I was really proud of. It was the uh, Black Lives Matter movement. Um, it, I had gotten like a text from a local band that had seen it on Instagram, like, hey, they're going to be doing like the first march here in Anchorage. And I was like, all right, I'm going to be there because like, I, I wasn't um, the editor of the press at the time. I was just a freelancer. But I was like, this has to be in the paper. Like, this is momentous. Mm-hmm. And so I went out to the first march and I was taking photos. And then I was listening to this, like, young kid speaking with the megaphone. And come to find out that, like, the organizer of the very first march um, in the state was this, like, young transgendered boy um, who was, like, in this crazy mix, like, who was um, native and black and raised by a white family. Um, and so he was the first one to do it. And he was like, I'm like, I need to know this kid's story. Like, I need to know who this person is and why they did it. Um, Mm -hmm. and talking to him about his, about his life, um, and the difficulties of like never being native enough or never being black enough, like never being man enough, never being woman enough. And like how that translated into him, like starting the movement up here, it was fascinating. Um, and it was a really heart-wrenching story and I think that's probably something I'm most proud of was was doing that um and putting that on the cover uh like I I fought with the editor at the time was like this has to be on the cover and I want this photo mm-hmm. um and I was like I I'm very like very adamant about this like this needs to be on there um so I would say that's probably one of the things that I'm one of the stories I, I would say that I'm like most proud of um and then as an editor I think like one of my first stories was about 907 wrestling, um, which is pro wrestling here in Anchorage, um, which sounds kind of like, you know, like, uh, that, like pro wrestling, whatever. But I, um, 
I got to meet these guys and they had these like really fascinating stories. Like one, um, one of the guys was adopted and he came from this really abusive family and even his adoptive family was abusive. And one day when he was a little kid, he saw wrestling on TV and he saw the villain and just loved the villain because it was Mm -hmm. like, and he identified with that, with them. It gave him power because he was like, I can say what I want to say and I can be angry and I can be mad and people can support that. Um, and so it gave him this new lease on life uh, and helped him get through this really difficult period in time. And then another one of the wrestlers, he um, suffered from really severe addiction um, and pro wrestling had pulled him out of the addiction, you know, and now he's he's engaged um, to one of the refs, which is really cute. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But it was this like really cool story with a lot of heart about these like different people um, in this really niche, like small like community right um who had these great stories about how like sport and and theater in a lot of ways uh changed who they were um Mm -hmm. and what i'm proud about with it is that so i I wrote the story and then um this this little like niche group of people ended up getting more and more attention so then all of a sudden like uh they were on podcasts and uh, alaska public media wanted to do something about them Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden um they're on Alaska business and now they're press picks, number one sports team. You know, it was like, yeah, yeah. Really cool because I, I got to watch this, like this scrappy little group of people who had come from a lot of trauma. Um, and they put together this amazing, this amazing group. Um, and I got to help promote them. And now they're selling out shows and they're like, have this really huge following. And I got to be a part of that. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. You know, and like the, you know, them and then, and then several other um, people reached out after the press shut down just to say thank you. Cause I, you know, and I didn't realize I'd had that impact on people, but they were like, you putting us in the paper and like championing us, like helped us sign a record label deal or like mm-hmm. it helped me launch my business. And, you know, all these like letters were coming in with people saying that. And I was just so mind blown. Cause I, I didn't realize it, you know, it's like you write a story and you're like on to the next one. Um, yeah, yeah. But it was so cool to know that I had some sort of impact on the community, like in a very tangible way. Yeah. Um, and so I think like those those things are definitely what I'm most proud of was was getting to make an actual impact in people's lives in a, in a very tangible, tangible way. What do you think the loss of the Anchorage Press means to the city of Anchorage, the people of Anchorage, and maybe even the future of journalism and journalists in the city? So a small question. Um, <laughs> Tiny. I was like, wow, it's still going. Or like, oh, what does this mean intergalactically? Um, <laughs> so, I was like, that's a lot of commas, Cody. Why are you still going? <laughs> I'm sweating, you guys. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I think the loss of the press, and it's something we kind of touched on earlier, I think what, what really the loss is, is it's the loss of representation for disenfranchised communities and for people that fall outside the traditional scope of traditional media. Like, it's not hard news. It's not crime. It's not, you know, <laughs> it's not business opening or something, you know, whatever falls in the traditional media. Like, the Anchorage Press covered all that stuff that didn't fit there. You know, mm-hmm. it, it wrote about... um like the the bathroom ban but it wrote about it from the perspective of like the actual people fighting for it you know it's mm-hmm. it's prism press like founded by rj johnson that was like the only queer publication in the entire state 
It's um, it's writing about people like who started the Black Lives Matter movement. It's reaching out to the Polynesian community. You know, it's all of these things. And then and then you tack on, you know, all the artists and the musicians um, that are no longer going to get coverage. Mm-hmm. You know, like they're you know, like the ADN is going to want to cover and it, which makes sense to me, like that they want to cover, you know, Pamela or like these big bands that are doing these things. But like, what about the little guys? You know, like the the bands that are are starting up here that are cool or like what about even um oh my gosh i'm like slipping on their name um you know the guys that like went outside and like did something cool with their life but they're not mega stars you know they're not portugal the man <laughs> like mm-hmm. what about their stories i'm thinking like danny resnick being one of them um he lives outside and plays for a jumpsuit appar- red jumpsuit apparatus and i think mm-hmm. like losing losing that voice is just so detrimental to the entire community because now we're getting mainstream media and that's it. There's no alternative voice. There's no one pushing back on things. Um, there's no one challenging the stories that are being written in traditional media and there's no one digging deeper to be like, well, what's the real meaning behind this? Um, you know, I think about the, the series that was done under Susie Buchanan with like the deadliest year, um, and like that ended up being this like huge series that was like really important within the state or like um the you know the deaths by like overdosing and opiate mm-hmm. um addiction you know like the, the ADN doesn't have like the resources really or like the i think the the style of writing that it would take to really tell a gritty story and to really capture what that looks like, what does the opioid addiction really look like, or even what is this, what's happening at Centennial Park and with the homeless population, like, what's actually happening, Um, you know, they're not going to go out and and talk to the homeless population or spend a week on a story, because you can't, you know, it's it's turn and burn, it's a daily paper, Um, whereas with, like, a weekly, you get more time, you know, to write uh, and to dig deeper, and I think, like, losing that is is just so sad for a community. I don't, I don't know who's going to pick up the slack on it or, or if anyone will. Um, but I hope, I hope someone does. Um, cause I, I just don't, you know, I don't think we're going to be as robust, um, without it, I guess that's, that's a really long winded answer. Um, intergalactically, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, it's, but yeah, I, you know, and I, I think that speaks to, you know, we talked about it a little bit in the mic check too, like, that speaks to all weekly's importance, not just in Anchorage, but nationally. Mm-hmm. Um, they're dying out at a really startling rate, which is like terrible because they've always sort of been the redheaded stepchild of like media, but they play such an important role. You know, I'm yeah. thinking about, um, we had talked about the Phoenix New Times being one of the only alt weeklies in the US. And something that they just did was wrote a story about the homeless population there and they were doing the police were coming through and like turning these camps upside down and like throwing away people's like everything. I mean, birth certificates, Mm. social security cards, everything, just clearing it out, um, like mercilessly. And so the Phoenix new times got deep into it and dug into it. And, um, the ACLU ended up picking it up and is now doing a lawsuit against the city. And so like, I think that is like the perfect example of why alt weeklies are important. Like mm-hmm. they raise awareness for things that are going on that are, that fall without that we'll, no one would hear about if it wasn't for an alt weekly, because mm-hmm. it, you know, <laughs> traditional media is going to be like, Oh yeah, they cleared this homeless camp. Like that's, you know, that's unfortunate, but they're not going to go talk to the people who just lost everything they owned 
right? They're not going to spend like a week or two weeks or even a month like doing that. Um, and I think that, you know, that right there is the importance. All weeklies have the ability to shape, um, to shape the communities that they're in, in a very like impactful way. And to me, that's, that's why they need to exist. That's why we need to invest in them. Um, and like, I hope that, I hope maybe we'll see a resurgence, like everything comes back around. Right. So mm -hmm. if, um, if the ugly, like nineties, nineties flannel culture that we, we all wore <laughs> is coming back, like maybe all weeklies will be next. I don't know. Yeah. Well, O'Hara, that does it for my questions. I want to thank you for chatting with me today and I'm sorry your time at the press ended so abruptly and unceremoniously, but you're a great journalist and I'm certain you'll find something better. Yeah, well, I appreciate it. And um, thanks for what you're doing with Crude um, as well, because, you know, you're also part of our little alt community. <laughs> um, and so we, <laughs> you know, we definitely all appreciate it up here, what you're doing. And, you know, please keep those really funny Crude memes going because they, uh, <laughs> they make my life. <laughs> Do you have anything else you'd like to add? No, but I hope you guys enjoy the... Uh, the <laughs> the uh the tumultuous <laughs> emotional uh roller coaster that was this podcast <laughs> <laughs> and, and please enjoy our, our self-help section um as well <laughs> you can support this podcast at patreon.com slash crude magazine you can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats. 